today you have a left liberal academic privileging an alien sociological lenses to study the Indian history and culture. So today you have people who come with postmodernism, feminism, and a whole lot of other alien lenses to look at ourselves and reinterpret everything in the Indian context in, the, in these alien ways. They privilege these things when they talk about Indian history and culture. If you have a model-based approach, a good model must accommodate all the evidence coherently with little or no conflict. And I'm saying that in the context of Indian history and culture, we've got things like archaeology, genetics, climate records, epigraphy, coins, literature, old records, foreign traveler accounts, and uh, world timelines, astronomy, sciences, scripts, grammar, language, paleontology, and uh, religion, philosophy. So many, many things are there. Data points are there. And our desire is to find out, can all of these things fit into a model of the Indian civilization with no conflict? So uh, today I'm going to talk on the story of ancient India from the deep south to the north. You might have heard my earlier talks where I focused on several other topics. Now I'd like to go deep into one area which is of great relevance to the identity of the Indian nation itself. So uh, before I start, my humble thanks to all the teachers who have taught us in the past, all the way from our acharyas and our gurus down to our uh, contemporary present-day teachers. So today we know that there are five forces allied against the narration of Indian history. So right in the very center and the oldest is a colonial narrator, which turns out to be a pretty Hindu-phobic narrator, if you will. And uh, uh, they are surrounded by the Eurocentric narrator, which took over from the colonial narrator. And you have vested interests that is one more layer around that. Today you have a liberal academic bias that also comes into our narratives and finally the Marxist bias. So these are the five forces that are today acting upon the narration of Indian history. Most of us are not aware of it, but it impacts our identity pervasively. And today when you look at what's happening in India, that there are riots that have been engineered all over the country. You need to sit and ask, so whose country is it? What is our identity as Indians? So these questions become all the more relevant when you take it uh, 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 how we are described in uh, common uh, narrations. So I'm saying that history plus ideology results in a subversion of our true identity. So today, if you ask a common Indian, maybe a student from the road, what is your identity as an Indian? They would have no idea. They would not be able to connect to anything in the past. They'd probably say we are some mix of uh, Bollywood and cricket and uh, maybe some uh, uh, Mughalai dishes and that's about it. That's our identity as Indians. But it's such a corruption and such an ignorant level of where, where we actually are and we'll try to address these things. So I've addressed these at length in my previous talk, so I'll quickly go through that. Why was Indian history distorted? Well, the early colonial historians were motivated by a desire to uphold the biblical chronology. Then the linguistic analysis of Indo-European languages led to something called a proto-Indo-European homeland in Central Asia. And that gave rise to something called the Aryan invasion theory. And as a corollary of that, somebody called Dravidians is assumed to be different people from the Aryans. And uh, the missionary desire was there to convert the southern Indians. Let's not forget where they first landed, in Tamil Nadu and uh, places like that. Then today you have a left liberal academic privileging an alien sociological lenses to study the Indian history and culture. 
So today you have people who come with postmodernism, feminism, and a whole lot of other alien lenses to look at ourselves and reinterpret everything in the Indian context in the in these alien ways. They privilege these things when they talk about Indian history and culture. Finally, we also have deep rooted in the Indian uh, context the Marxist desire to subvert the Indic identity because they believe change can only come on the back of a revolution and that's by destroying the old order. The old order in India is the Indic Dharmic civilization. By destroying that, change can come about. So that, that deep desires there are uh, underlying all of these things. So I come with a very analytical way of looking at things. So I ask, whenever we do any kind of analysis, we need a model. And you do that every day. Every day when you do any kind of analysis, you probably have a model of where you want to go. You validate that model and try to see does that model work well. So I say that if you have a model-based approach, a good model must accommodate all the evidence coherently with little or no conflict. And I'm saying that in the context of Indian history and culture, we've got things like archaeology, genetics, climate records, epigraphy, coins, literature, old records foreign traveler accounts and uh, world timelines, astronomy, sciences, scripts, grammar, language, paleontology, and uh, religion, philosophy. So many, many things are there. Data points are there. And our desire is to find out, can all of these things fit into a model of the Indian civilization with no conflict? If there is a conflict, we have to understand why is the conflict? Is the conflict because my model is wrong, my assumptions are wrong, or is the data wrong? Have I measured the data incorrectly? So these are the things that an analytical engineer or somebody else would do in trying to understand the narration of history. So I'm saying a good model can explain the context multidimensionally and be used to uh, predict to fill the gaps. So today we have overwhelmingly the linguistic model to discuss about uh, uh, Indians. And this proto-Indo-European linguistic model led to a homeland in Central Asia and led to the uh, RN invasion or the migration theory in 1500 BC from Central Asia. And as a result of this model, the, uh, the, 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 the thinking is that Sanskrit and Hinduism is an import into India from Central Asia, and the Dravidians are separate people. So they're not the same as Aryans. That is the thinking. So if you look at the evidence, the evidence is made to fit the linguistic model. Some of the things like, for example, genetics. Today, everybody talks about genetics, genetics models, and so on. But what we find is genetics, the evidence is made to fit this because they use constraints from this model in order to talk about genetics itself. There are other evidence also that does not fit the linguistic model. And some of the things I put over here, for example, things like uh, astronomy, archaeology, climate records, oral and literary works, None of these evidence from these areas fit the linguistic model. So we are now asking the question, what is wrong? Is our uh, data over here incorrect? Or is there some problem with this model? Why is it that all the evidence that we have of the Indian civilization cannot coherently be discussed in the context of the models that have been, we are told is correct, right? We are told the linguistic model is correct. So uh, I'd like to now just talk about the five forces very, very briefly. I talked about this in the past also, so I won't go too much into detail. The Indian uh, history narration started with the colonial people, and they started ideological scholarship. And they came, like I said, motivated by a desire to uphold the biblical history. And they believed that God created the world in 4004 BCE, and nothing could have uh, been there prior to that. They also believed God destroyed the world in Noah's flood in 3000 BCE. 
and because of that no history can be present from then till the current times so when these guys came and saw the puranic uh, chronologies when they came to india they asked the indians what is your history they said we have the itihasas we have the puranas we got uh, temple epigraphy all these kind of things they looked at that and said whoa there are huge timelines in the indian context and that doesn't fit with the biblical chronology so they came around saying that there are problems with the indian chronology and we need to correct it and in the process of correct, correcting it they first came about trying to say where does indian history fit with the known western history so they went and saw that majasthenes talked about somebody called sandrakutos and they tried to see in the purana king list who is the closest to this uh, phonetically that we say sandrakutos they said chandragupta maurya so they linked up chandragupta maurya with sandrakutos and said aha we have an anchor point and we know where western history is in relation with indian history however the puranic records the, the chandragupta maurya is about 1200 years earlier than uh, 300 bc or so so they introduced dis- distortions by reducing a huge uh, puranic uh, chronology into a very short uh, indian chronology so people say is it right why would the colonials do that is there any proof that the colonials came around with a biblical way of thinking well if you look at what they wrote william jones said either the first 11 chapters of genesis are true or the whole fabric of our national religion is false he also said i'm obliged to believe the sanctity of the venerable books of genesis genesis talks about the creation of man the world in seven days and dog and so on and so forth max muller he said i look upon the creation given in genesis as simply historical so this is the kind of biblical thinking they came with and they imposed a young chronology in india and we are uh, as a consequence of that we have aryan invasion discrediting of indic sources uh, recent linguistic data for works and so on one more work that i came across uh, on max muller he wrote a letter to his wife and that letter was in 1866 published in this account over here edited by his wife and he says that uh, the vedas are the root of the religion to show them what that root is i am feel sure is the only way of uprooting all that has sprung from it from the last 3000 years so very very clearly in his own words his works of translating the vedas and everything else is motivated by desire to uproot the indic civilization in favor of a, a biblical chronology so it's not just our imagination running wild and so on there is proof to look at what the thinking was in those days the colonial way of thinking soon led to a eurocentric way of looking at indian history primarily because europeans were interested in knowing what is their homeland ever since uh, william jones came to india and he said there is a commonality between sanskrit latin and greek they seem to be related the europeans wanted to know where is our homeland so initially they thought india was the homeland and sanskrit is a mother of all the languages then eventually they discovered the mitannis and the hittites who were supposedly indo-aryan in the late 1800s once they did that then linguistic models were proposed to try and say that sanskrit is no longer the mother language there must have been an even more ancient ancestral language which they call the proto indo-european language and uh, uh, because of that uh, the homeland shifted and they tried to see where it was and finally landed up in central asia and they proposed because of that that aryans came to india in 1500 bc it's a consequence of uh, these discoveries over here then in uh, late 1800s they discovered the indus valley civilization and in 1900s when they started excavating the site they found skeletons there and so on and very very soon one of these guys who excavated there came around saying that 
Indra stands indicted because Indra is called Purandara, the destroyer of forts. And here you see that there are dead bodies here in the Indus Valley and so on and so forth. And they said that it's supposed to be an invasion from the proto-Indo-European homeland. And they used linguistics and archaeology to make these claims. Now in 2000s, the invasion has become a migration from the proto-Indo-European homeland using linguistics, archaeology and genetics as the tools. And we talked about this earlier also that uh, from proto-Indo-European language, hypothesized ancestral language, that today the linguistic model says that all of these languages have the root in this uh, particular source. And you can see that from here is Indo-Iranian and from Indo-Iranian is Iranian Indic, from Indic is Sanskrit and all the Northern Indian languages over here. I put this as an example to show you how this theory works. So for uh, proto-Indo-European reconstruction, the example is the wheel. Archaeologically, we have seen examples of the wheel all over the place. The Vincha culture, for example, in Ukraine, they claim that the oldest wheel has been found in their civilization. It's not a civilization, it's a culture more than a civilization. 3,800 BC is when they found that. And we also see that in Harappa around, from around uh, 2600 BC. And this wheel is a common sight even today in rural India. If you go to rural India, you find the bullock cart that shows these wheels. So any culture that has got the wheel must have got words for the technology of the wheel and the cart. It must have a word for the wheel, for the yoke, for the hub, for the axle and so on. And so if you look at the old Sanskrit, Latin, Greek, Hittite, Tocharian, you find that for the wheel, the Sanskrit word is chakra, in Latin is rotum, very close to rotate. And in Greek is kuklos, and Hittite is something else, and so on. For yoke, it is yoga, lugam, zugo, jagua, and so on. And for the hub, it is nabya, umbilicus. Axle, it is axa, or axis over here. And this is a proposed reconstruction from PIE for the wheel. So the PIE word, wheel, they say is something, I don't even know how to pronounce this, but maybe Queklo, I don't know. If there's a star in the beginning of the word, that means it's not a real word. It's a reconstructed word, academically reconstructed. So this academically reconstructed word is Queklo. That gave rise to the proto-Indo-Iranian word called Kekro, which is also not real. That's a reconstructed word. And that gave rise to the real word called Chakra. So here's the irony of what it is. Today, to have got the PIE language, the only data they have is Sanskrit. The only data available to reconstruct the PIE language is Sanskrit. And from Sanskrit, most of these uh, data, they worked backwards and proposed and reconstructed academically the so-called language called Proto-Indo-European. So this is the irony of uh, what we are buying today from uh, the PIE. So the linguistic model, one of the advances was when they found something called the Kenton-Satan classification. So if I ask somebody over here, what do we say is for 100 in Sanskrit? What is the word for 100 in Sanskrit? Shatam. Shatam. So in Latin, that became Kentum, which is pronounced as centum, but it is Kentum. So the KH became, becomes K, the hard K in Greek or the H in Germanic. Whereas the, this is a proposal, this is only a proposal with academicians, and the ka becomes sh in Sanskrit. So satam is 100 Navistan, and this one is in Latin. So they assume that the Kentum languages are all European. However, Tokarian over here, which is there in the northeast of India, literally, and Hittite in Asia, uh, and satam is assumed to be Asian. However, all the Slavic languages show the satam, uh, like Baltic, Albanic, and so on. 
So Conrad Delst also shows there's a proto-Bangani in the Himalayan region that uses Koto for 100, which is also a Kentum kind of a language. So in other words, even the so-called advance in linguistic that is dividing languages the basis of the Kentum and the Satum, even that is called into question because it is not a neat uh, division. There seems to be all kinds of problems here. So if one is proposing that migration is what led to the uh, uh, spread of these languages, then it doesn't appear to be a very clean migration. There appears to be all kinds of things happening over here. That's one of the uh, uh, things over here. So today the linguistic analysis has gone into a Eurocentric kind of a mode, two modern languages and their narrators. One is by Maria Gimbutas and other one Colin Renfro. We talked about this in, uh, extensively in the past, where we said that today there's a Kurgan or Steppe hypothesis where in three waves with the domestication of the horse, 3500 BC, these people living between Caspian Sea and the Black Sea, Yamnaya culture, they spread it to the east and the west, becoming the Cordedware people and the Andronovo people. And by 1500 BC, the bacteria margina archaeological complex have entered into India. And by 500 BC, they have settled all over northern India. And you see the appearance of the Dravidian people. We have talked about this in the past, so I won't talk too much about it. So the Aryan invasion theory involves all of these things, a leftist academic, Eurocentric, colonial, vested interest, Marxist, everybody's got a stake in this narrative. So when so, so many stakeholders are there, you can imagine how tightly it is held to the chest. It's not going to be easy to approve this uh, particular one. So it says that bands of male warriors from Central Asia invaded or migrated to India around 1500 BC, replaced the existing civilization and they brought Sanskrit, Vedic ecosystem and so on. So the last of these forces is the Marxist ideological offensive. And today the ecosystem in academia is strongly controlled by the Marxists who uh, control the narration and so on. And they, they, there's a whole lot of claims that they make. And uh, uh, I don't even want to go into all of these things. But the bottom line is there is distortions, erasures, biases, and errors. That is a representation of the current narrative. And I make this claim because I have reviewed the textbooks that is used in Telangana uh, by the st school students, written by people belonging to certain ideological uh, persuasions. And these things show all of these things, uh, distortions, erasures, bias, errors, and so on. And I claim we cannot build a national identity when our narrative has got so much of distortion. Like I said, today you have rioting happening all over the country. And the reason is because everybody's mapped strange identities to themselves. Some people say that this is who Indian identity is. You go to southern India and somebody, drive it in or somebody, this is who I am, this is my identity and so on. So the, uh, the tragedy is that out of all of this... Uh, uh, um, uh, 70 years of feeding us with a certain kind of an identity, we need to unravel, deconstruct our thinking and try to figure out who we are. So the story of the Indian civilization, the mainstream narrative says Aryan invasion, but then evidence will show out of India. They say Indic thought only impacted the East, but we show it impacted East and West. They say Indic civilization is recent, we show it is pretty ancient. They say that Indic thought borrowed from Greeks and Babylonians, but we show that the Indic thoughts seeded the Greeks and Babylonians. All this I've done in the last, in the past two Indic uh, region talks. So if you're interested in these topics, please go and see the last two talks over there. Today I'm going to be covering this main thing where it says, the mainstream says Indians are Aryans and Dravidians and tribals also. Whereas I will show that these identities are manufactured. We've also addressed this in past talks. Vedic culture is responsible for poverty. as shown invasions are uh, responsible. So here we are. What is the story of the Deep South? This is something that we are not addressed very often in our discussions. I'd like to uh, go in fairly uh, some detail with this. So today the Dravidian claims are such that 
it is unique to Tamil Nadu. If you take somebody from Karnataka, from Andhra, Telangana or uh, Kerala, the chances are they wouldn't even see themselves as so-called Dravidians. They wouldn't even see themselves as a different identity. This is a problem that is unique to Tamil Nadu, the Dravidianism claim. There is a claim that there existed an ancient Dravidian civilization in the sunken region called Kumari Kandam. There is a claim that Haripatan people were Dravidian. Aryan invasion supposedly drove the Dravidians to the south and the Aryans are oppressors. The claim is Tamil is the oldest language and we have our Prime Minister himself went and uh, proclaimed this and uh, it is distinct from Sanskrit. It says that Dravidians are racially distinct from Northern Indians. Oldest Indian scripts are in Tamil Brahmi and pure Tamil or Sen Tamil can be got by removing Sanskrit from all the Tamil works of ancient times. It says that the Dravidian people are descended or related from or to the Elamites. And Thiruvalluvar, who was a saint in uh, uh, Rishi, if you will, in ancient uh, Tamil Nadu, he was influenced by Thomas the Apostle. So the last two claims are part of the Dravidian Christian claims, which is very, very prominent, which says that they're related to Elamites and Thomas the Apostle. So when we look at ancient Tamil history and try to see what can we make out of it, the earliest that we have is something called the Sangam periods. So the Sangam periods are uh, recounted by 5th century work by Nakhira, who is a Pandian, who says that the first Sangam was for 4,400 years in Thain Madurai. Thain Madurai is southern Madurai, attended by 459 poets, including the Rishi called Agastya. Then it says the second Sangam period was for 3,700 years in Kapatapuram, attended by 59 poets and Agastya. It implies that Agastya could have been a titular title for different people of a, a particular Sampradaya. And it says that the, these two cities were both submerged and all the literary works of that era was lost. And the third Sangam is in Uttara Madurai, that is current present-day northern Madurai, and that lasted for 1850 years. So if you look at Times of India in, uh, on a particular report, it says Tamilakam, which is this area, had interfaces with more than 30 cultural groups in more than 40 port cities across Indian, uh, Indian Ocean, Red Sea, Mediterranean. It was an exchange network of people, goods, cultures and technologies. So it's fairly obvious we have such a long coastline. This is a, a, a maritime-based civilization. If there was one, it's a maritime civilization. We need to look for evidence of that. Some more of the Sangam period, this 15th century poet in a, in a particular work, he says that land from Pahruli river in the north to Kumari river in the south was lost. Both are located to the south of Kanyakumari and it covered an area of 700 kavatam. We don't know what that measurement kavatam is. So it's just a figure that is there in this particular 15th century work. Some more medieval writers say there's loss of land south of Madurai. First century BC work also measures the loss of Pandian area to the sea. There is a 6th century work that mentions that the Pandian king, because he lost, Pandian lands are lost to the sea, he says he took an equal measure of land from the Cheras and the Cholas from both sides. So that work is also there to compensate. However, not one of these accounts uses a word called Kumari Kandam, which is very, very common in uh, today's narrative. So we go to see what is, who even brought this word Kumari Kandam to the, uh, to the discourse. So Kumari Kandam appears in Kanda Puranam written by uh, Kachyapa Shivacharya in 1350 as a place where Shiva worshipping Brahmins live 
and it is nothing to do with land laws. 20th century Tamil supremacists, they seized upon the failed theory of Lemuria and they proposed that lost land was Kumari Kandam. Now we must go back to the 19th century when the people who geologists of that era, they were trying to study why is that the shape of the continents are such that it's like a jigsaw puzzle, they seem to fit to each other. You see that Madagascar fits into Africa, southern India fits over here and so on and so forth. And they proposed that there was a lost continent over there, the lost continent was Lemuria. But that theory was discredited pretty soon once they discovered plate tectonics and so on. They said that there's no such thing as Lemuria. However, it was too late because the Tamil Supremists had seized upon that land. And they said that Kumari Kandam was a land from southern India over here, all the way to Australia over here, up to Madagascar over here. So this is the claim. If you look at uh, Tamil works, uh, Supremists talk about Kumari Kandam. This is the claim that there was a lost land. So, if we go looking scientifically for an evidence for this, the only time it might have been possible is the last glacial maximum, an ice age, when it was about 26.5 thousand years ago to 19 thousand years ago. The sea levels were 125 meters lower than today and vast ice sheet covered most of North America. We also had a late glacial climate warming about uh, 13 to 10,000 years ago when the uh, uh, cold event was over and uh, water started submerging. Why am I saying all these things? Because if you look at uh, National Geographic, there is reference to something called Dogger Land. So Dogger Land was this area that you see here. And if you look at this very carefully, you'll recognize that this is the United Kingdom. And around United Kingdom's land, and this land was called Dogger Land, and here is the North Sea over here. So 17,000 years ago, there was land over here. You could have walked from mainland Europe into uh, uh, United Kingdom. And 9,000 years before present, all of this was land. So this, this is what I uh, wanted to show. that uh, 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 Today, if you use Google Earth and try to see what is the sea depth in these areas, you find that in this 17,000 years, it is 122 meters or 400 feet. And over here it is 2,700 meters where it falls off or 9,000 feet. And here is 31 meters at the channel over here or around 100 uh, feet. So I said, if 9,000 years ago in uh, United Kingdom Dogger Land, this was the sea level and this is the land level, what would have been the case in India, closer to the equator? What would have been the sea level? Can we uh, think there's a land over there? So I went around and tried to see Google Earth, trying to see what is the sea depth. And it looks like over here it is 4,570 meters, that is 4 kilometers depth. And over here it is 3,800 near Madagascar, 3,700 near Australia, 5,200. And I say that any area 122 meters and less would be candidate for Kumari Kandam. Because that's the extent of the ice age, right? When ice age is locked up most of the water and ice, anything that is 122 meters in depth would have been a candidate for Kumari Kandam. But we are finding that in southern India, there is absolutely no place that is 122 meters and less, especially where it is claimed to be uh, the lost land. And if you go closer into the uh, coastline of India, then we see that around Kerala, it is 120 meters over here, 150 meters here, and just outside Kanyakumari, 10 meters and uh, 8 meters near Park Strait, this north of Park Strait. And this side of Sri Lanka, it is uh, 3,500 meters. Just this side of Sri Lanka, it falls off to 2 kilometers, 2 kilometers here, 1 kilometer here, 1 ki kilometer, and so on. So if there was land 
the land would have extended only over here, Kumari Kanda, 9,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago. I made a crude estimate and said that around 160,000 square kilometers would have been lost from Kanyakumari onwards to the north of Sri Lanka. That would have been the extent of <coughs> land loss if there was Kumari Kandam. This is the civilization that would have existed. A coastal civilization might have existed over here. So the reality is climate records and sea floor depth show there is no scope for a continent stretching from India to Madagascar to Australia. Up to 90 miles from present shoreline was above sea level up to 12,000 BCE. We might have had sudden sea rise level at global temperature around 7000 BC. We could also have had subduction earthquake. We saw what happened in Indonesia, right? With the subduction earthquake, the land dipped by 6 meters. So we could have had things like that, but not to the depth seen. I don't think it would have subduction to 1 kilometer, 2 kilometers. That wouldn't have happened. Coastal Tamil Nadu probably ex uh, experienced submerging around 9000 years ago. Now... If we look at other texts to see evidence of southern Indian uh, mention in our texts and so on, you find that there's a story of Agastya in the extreme south. We know that Agastya came from the northern part of India, crossed the Vindhyas, told the Vindhyas, don't grow till I come back, and he's supposed to come to the south. So, Professor Abhayankar said, if Agastya was the first to cross Vindhyas and see Canopus, Canopus is a star that we called Agastya, then the date is 5200 BC. So what is this graph over here? This graph shows the appearance and disappearance of a star called Agastya. Agastya is a star in Greek that we called Canopus. So I drew this map from the latitude of Jaffna. So this is the horizon, the east, south and west. And you see that Agastya just appears over uh, uh, Jaffna over here in, in this particular time frame that I uh, uh, listed 12,000 years ago. 12,000 years ago, this appeared. So, Professor Abhyankar said, Agastya appeared in Kadyakumari in 10,000 BCE. It appeared in Madras around 8,500 BCE, Hyderabad in 7,200 BCE, Vindhyas 5,200, New Delhi 3,100 BCE. Today we are here where Agastya is visible all over India, but we'll go on a disappearance curve also. And from Kanyakumari, 11,000 years from now, you won't even see uh, Canopus anymore. Why is that? Because in my old talks, I talked about precision, right? Earth is precising, uh, precisioning at uh, 26,000 years, tracing a very slow circle in the sky. So right now, from the northern India is in the northern hemisphere. Agastya is a star in the southern hemisphere. Normally, from India, we cannot see Agastya. But if you think of the whole of the earth as a dipped in this way, right? Precision has dipped in this way, giving us a view of the southern hemisphere. So pretty soon you can think that the whole uh, precision will dip in this way and we won't see Agastya anymore. So that is the appearance and disappearance cycle that you're talk talking about over here. So we know that there's a story in our Puranas of Agastya drinking up the ocean water because the God said there are some demons living under the sea. So can you drink up the ocean water? Agastya drinks up the ocean water and then they go and kill the demons. And after some time, this God say, give the waters again. The earth needs water. So he gives up the water. The oceans are refilled again. So this one, if we think that it is a correspondence to the late glacial maximum, it corresponds to 12,000 years ago. If you think about the refilling of the ocean because of ice age melting, that corresponds to 7,000 years ago. So I'm putting some factoids together over here about the story of Agastya, about the eyewitness accounts from the Tamil literary work that talks about Kumari Kandam, land loss, Pandian king taking land to compensate, all of these things, ice age levels and so on. 
it appears that there's some truth to some of these things that we see over here that if if uh, if, if you can imagine that somebody coming to southern part of india 10000 bc and sees suddenly there's a new star that has come on the horizon it's just coming on the horizon and dipping you could not have seen this from interior india because you have mountains you got valleys you cannot see that but if you're in southern india right at the tip and there's only the ocean to see at the horizon you can see there's a new star that came there and that new star would have come in 10000 uh, bc so that's the story of agastya like to go from that into some southern indian archaeology today there is news all over the place about kriradi and uh, places like that and we'd like to understand what is happening over there what are the artifacts been found there what are the claims been made by the tamil nadu government of uh, archaeological department and so on so like to talk about kriradi to adichanalur this is a, a, a birds eye view of the site in kriradi so kriradi is a site on the banks of the vaigai river the it's around um, outside of madurai maybe about uh, 20 miles or so outside of madurai i can't show it to you on the map over here it's here but i can't locate where madurai madurai is over here so from this paper over here excavation that kiradi between 2014 and 2016 from this i got these pictures over here this is a very interesting picture because it shows that terracotta pipes where did we last see pipes in the indian civilization we saw that in harappa we saw that in indus valley civilization drainage systems pipes and so on and so forth so when the archaeologists saw this they were super excited they said that is this somehow linked with the harappan technology and so on and so forth we are not seen this earlier in some of the other indian sites so that's why there was a lot of exuberance in indian press when this came out and there is a lot of brick lining over here as well as drainage uh, i didn't include those pictures also drainage pictures and so on and so forth and a lot of other finds things like seals uh, some terracotta figurines and pots and uh, so on this excited a lot of people because they found pottery shards with tamil brahmi on them and you find uh, these these things over here tamil brahmi and this is very interesting a fish if you remember the indus valley script you remember that one of the most frequent signs you see there is a fish and so seeing a fish over here was once again exciting to the archaeologists who made very very quick connections trying to talk about harappa and so on and so forth and they also found that they found some jewelry and some artifacts like a comb ivory comb some beads and a, a pestle and a mortar and a, those those kinds of common things you expect to see in a civilization and some more that hints at industry in kiradi things like uh, buttons and uh, weaving industry glass beads game pieces one might remember game pieces from harappa also and you see that there are game pieces over here and say again terracotta figurines and some bone uh a points which might have used for hunting and so on and uh, some again agate beads in 2017 they did the carbon dating at kiradi so the news report said they had dug up to 4.5 meters at kiradi they took carbon samples from the middle layer from the 2 uh, meter depth and they sent it off to florida for carbon dating and it came back with 3rd century bce so when this result came i proposed that the terminus layer of kiradi should be around 3000 bc i did a linear uh, curve fitting and i said that if the top layer is 2017 and 2 meters down to 300 bce then taking a straight line fit then at 4.5 meters it's got to be 3000 bce so uh, very recently in 2019 they released six more carbon dating results which they took at various depths they took it at uh, um, uh, 200 cm depth at 353 cm depth and they came around with some dates of 6th century bc and 3rd century bc this is a carbon sample 
They sent it off to a lab in Florida once again. And I fit two lines to these things. And I'm not going to talk about the mathematics and so on. But the bottom line is I said that from the present year around 2000, if you take the first line, it seems to go until around uh, this point for the two meter depth. Then if you take the earlier curve, it goes down. So 4.5 meters is over here. That corresponds to 3000 BCE. Whereas if you take the new line, it terminates somewhere over here around uh, uh, 800 BC. So I said the range for the low strata of Kiradi can range from 821 BC to 3000 BC, corresponding to 4.5 meters depth. And I'm suggesting that we need to be more optimistic. So the true date can be anywhere from 800 to 1000 BC. So where is the real date? In order to do that, I'm suggesting that let's take a look at what happened in uh, what, what we found in Beit Dwaraka. How many of you know where Beit Dwaraka is? It's right, it's an island outside uh, Dwaraka, right? So in Beit Dwaraka, Professor S.R. Rao, he had found pottery inscriptions that looked like a transitive script between the Indus script to Brahmi. So they called it a transitive script. And he decoded the script and suggested that it, it tells something. We'll talk about this a little later on. In Kiradi too, they found that there's a lot of what they call graffiti and this graffiti seems to bear a resemblance to Indus signs, and that's, that caused a lot of excitement too. And so I am suggesting that if there was contact between the regions via sea trade in a very early period of time and sharing knowledge of writing, this is possible. And given that we have a transitive Indus to Brahmi inscription in Beit Dwaraka in 1500 BCE, I'm taking the average of these two and I'm saying that Kiradi is probably 1900 BCE. That is probably the date for the terminus layer over there. So from that, we'll move on. To, we talked about this earlier. In southern India, you also have Arikameda glass factories over there that has been dated around uh, 300 BC and maybe even older over there. One more archaeological site in the south that is called Adi Chanalur. So Adi Chanalur is near Thutukudi in southern India. And they found a lot of things. For example, they found urn burials and gold diadems. They call patam. And even now in southern India, even in some places in northern India, during wedding times, you find the bridegroom, he wears a head ornament. So that basically is an old custom, very, very, very old custom in India. And you find that even in southern India, there's gold leaf patam over there. They found what they call the bronze of mother goddess. And this really gets me because this is a word that was introduced by the Marxists. In India, we have nothing like mother goddess. We know what Shakti is. All of us everywhere know what, what Shakti is. We have no clue what mother goddess is. So, but at any rate, this is called mother goddess. And it is dated to around 1500 BCE. They found skulls of foreigners from Southeast China, Mediterranean Africa around 2500 BCE in this part of uh, India. Uh, skulls show abnormalities. What are these abnormalities? It is reminiscent of deep sea divers. If you go deep sea diving, then there are some nitrogen pockets that happen in the bone, causes some changes in the structure, causes, ho causes holes in your skull, literally. And because of that, they know there were deep sea divers or pearls. They were pearl fishermen, right? They'd go uh, deep diving, pick up uh, pearl income. So they studied 170 skeleton remains and they say Caucasoid constitutes 35%, Mongoloid 30%, Negroid 14% and so on, what they call Dravidian 8% in mixed rates. However, this paper also says that the population changed by 500 BC. Or whoever was there earlier, 2500 years, 2500 BC, that has entirely changed by 500 BC. So... Uh, Way back in 2005, when the tsunami hit uh, southern India, 
it also uncovered certain things at Mahabalipuram. And one of the things it uncovered was a temple that is 2200 years old, that is 200 BC. So what am I doing so far? We talked about Kiradi. We talked about Kiradi and we said that the declared dates are 600 BCE. However, I'm proposing 1900 BC for the reason of Brahmi and transit of Brahmi and so on. From there, we went to Adi Chinalur. We went to Adi Chinalur and said, look at the artifacts I found over there. And now I'm come to 2200 years ago, saying that appears to have a, what we call Hindu culture, the temples, actual remains of temples, where the declaring is a temple at this point. Addressing the issue of are the Dravidians connected to the Elamites, the proto-Elamites? Who are the Elamites? The people who lived near the Iranian area, the Susa and other places near the Iranian area. They were the Elamite people. So they had a script that looks like this. It is not deciphered even today. Elamite appears in 2500 BCE. It was used for 2000 years. Even when Alexander came to that part of the world, they were using this script in that part of the world. And this uh, professor says, neither proto-Elamite or later lenient Elamite has been deciphered. So although some linguists believe Elamite related to Dravidian languages, which includes Tamil and the Elamo-Dravidian languages, however, they say that there's no proof. We don't even know what Elamite is, let alone a connection between Elamite and uh, the so-called Dravidian. So based on the reconstructions available, there are people making some of these claims. So I don't think we can uh, take this very, very seriously as yet. So if we talk about, uh, we talked about uh, archaeology, we talked about the Kumari Kandam first, we talked about archaeology, then we started talking about Brahmi, because there's a claim now that Brahmi, Tamil Brahmi is the oldest script found in India, if you leave the Indus Valley uh, script aside, this is the oldest script found in India, we're going to evaluate some of these claims. So what is the story of scripts? What is the Harappan script and how is it related to Brahmi? Here is an example of the uh, Brahmi script. So there are three hypotheses on the Indus script, and this is from a work by uh, Rajesh Rao, Professor Rajesh Rao. So he says, hypothesis one, the Harappan script does not encode language. It only shows signs. For example, today we have a signpost saying right turn only, left turn, stop, and all these kind of things, using these kind of things. So it is only a sign language. It does not encode language. Second hypothesis is that it encodes an Indo-European language like Sanskrit, for example. The third one is that encodes a Dravidian language. So these are three claims on what the Indus script could be related to. So he did a mathematical analysis. So what he said is, for all these scripts, he took a sequence length of 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, or 6, and wanted to study mathematically something called entropy. Entropy is the information content, or the disorder, if you will. So he said, if I take a purely random sequence, the maximum entropy can be this black straight line over here. Then he took DNA sequences and he tried to see how much of information is a DNA sequence. And he found that comes somewhere over here. Then he took uh, proteins, protein sequence that comes over here. Then he took music, music scores, Western music scores and so on. And he found that also comes here. So all the non-linguistic uh, things that he took by his algorithm seem to be lumped up together over here. Then he took uh, Tamil, English, Sanskrit, Tagalog, Indus, Sumerian, Photon uh, programming language, and so on, and tried to see where do these things fit. Photon was the least disorder, because Photon is a very, very structured language. It has got very little uh, syntax to work with, very, very structured. So it has very little disorder over here. But he found that other things are clustered right over here, showing that the Indus script could be contain linguistic data. 
that is the implication. I hope you understand what I'm saying. So it, it, his, his theory was that it encodes uh, linguistic data. So that's what I've shown. Random sequence at the top and no variation at the bottom. And so the Indus and Sumerian scripts on the ballpark of being linguistic. And uh, however, I'm saying that don't look at this and say that, oh, it is closer to old Tamil compared to Sanskrit. That may not be a, a, a something that we can uh, um, conclude. So here there are a couple of researchers that I put over here. And uh, uh, Dr. Srini Kalyan Raman, he wrote this book on uh, hieroglyphs of the Indian linguistic area. And he says these pictures convey text messages in cryptic form. And he says a rebus. A rebus is like a word puzzle. Today, many of the kids, when they're texting, they say, I'll be late. They say L and 8, which says late, right? Or things of that nature. That's a rebus. It's a word example. It's a, it's a cryptic example, a puzzle. So he said that the indescript is a, 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 a rebus that draws from tribal languages and classical languages for India. And it shows that it represents a metallurgical society. So many of the words that in indescript was uh, basically referring to a metallurgical uh, society. On the other hand, we have this person, Egbert Richter Ushanas, who said that the logograms seem to encode messages from the Rig Veda. So he took several of the Rig Vedic verses and he showed that the Rig Vedic, uh, the uh, Indus script can be translated as having encoded some of these, these messages over here. Professor S.R. Rao in 1982 in a paper, he took 62 signs and showed that it encodes Sanskrit in this particular work, decipherment of the Indus script. You can follow this for more uh, reason. Then this Finnish professor, Asko Parpola, he proposed that it is related to the Dravidian languages. For example, taking this uh, fish sign, in uh, Tamil it is called mean. Mean is fish. So the, he says the intended meaning is either fish or a star. Then if there is a, a fish and two lines, the line is like a sphere. A sphere is called a whale in Tamil or a veli. So he says that means it's Venus or a white star. Similarly, if there are six lines, uh, six fishes, that's an aramine. And he says that is Kritika, because Kritika is a bunch of six uh, stars and so on. So this is a reconstruction. So you don't have to immediately say this is correct. It's appealing. It looks very appealing and very nice to imagine that. However, it is one of the decodings possible. Iravatan Mahadevan also uh, leaned towards uh, uh, Indescript being um, uh, Dravidian languages and he proposed certain things over here. So what I'm saying here is when some phenomena can be rep represented by multiple models, that means we don't have something important to discriminate it yet. For example, if I say I want to go from here to the airport, Indira Gandhi T3 airport, and if you go to Google, it will say there are one route you can go like this, another route you can go like this, another route you can go like this. So there is no key discriminator yet. All these appear to be right, but there's no one single discriminator saying this is the correct route to take. You understand that? So that's what I'm saying. Mathematically, we still don't have a key discriminator. So I'm saying, can we hope for a Rosetta Stone from future archaeology, maybe in Mesopotamia? Maybe something in Mesopotamia might turn up that has got the missing link that says in this script, this is what it is. But we don't have any such thing today. So I'm opening the next question then. How is the Indus script related to the later Indian scripts like Brahmi? What is the relationship? For that, I'm appealing to the work by Professor Suvashkak in Cryptology in 1990. What he did was he took Two shows two tables over here, the 10 most common Brahmi letters in rank order with percentage. He says that if a frequency uh, uh, understanding of the script says this is the most common Brahmi sign, second most common, third most common and so on. 
Then he took the Mahadevan concordance of Indus signs and said these are the most common Indus signs. And then if you start looking at these two, you start seeing some patterns, right? You start seeing some uh, patterns that, yes, these things could be related in some way of, like for example, this one to this one, from this one to this one, from this one to this. There appears to be some relationship over here. So by looking at purely the frequencies which you can test or anybody can test, it appears that there is some kind of an evolution from the Indus to Brahmi. And uh, Subhajit Ganguly, 2012, in this paper, he shows that you actually can take some of the Harappan's uh, scripts and show how it evolves into Brahmi. So he's proposed several of these signs and showing the evolution of uh, these into Brahmi. Now, colonial historians, what did they say? Colonial historians said that all the world's languages came from Phoenician script. The Phoenicians are people who lived somewhere near Israel or uh, some place like that. And they said that the Phoenician script was the oldest. And from Phoenician script, we got archaic Greek, archaic Roman, as well as the common uh, today's English. So this sign became like this, like this, and became A. And on this side, it became Brahmi. And development of Brahmi to modern Nagari script, he shows this, this how they happened. It's again a model. It's a proposal and it's a model. So they said that Phoenician gave rise to these things and Bula suggested it gave rise to Brahmi, which gave rise to Nagari in other script. However, if you go and see which is the earliest Phoenician alphabet that we have in the archaeological record, it turns out to be 850 BCE from something called Ahiram sacrophagus, which and it appears fully developed. When you expect to see a script, you want to see it showing stages of development, but it appeared as if it's a fully developed script, implying it came from somewhere else. So the oldest Brahmi script we have found, the archaeological record is 500 BCE, and the transitive Brahmi which I've shown, it is around 1500 BCE. So right here, you, you can start asking questions. Flags are going up and saying that it appears that in India, we have some scripts that appear to be much older in the Brahmi, transitive Brahmi. And there's a claim by colonials that is held today that Phoenician gave rise to, or they call it Semitic scripts that gave rise to these things. So if you look at what is the relationship of modern scripts to Brahmi, you can see that the Brahmi script gave rise on one side to the Gupta script, to Nagari, to Sharada, to Gurumukhi, to Oriya, Devanagiri, to Bengali, on Manipuri, Gujarati. And on this side, Kadamba gave it to Kannada and to Telugu. And the Grantha gave it to Tamil, Malayalam, Singhala. And from here, it also went to Southeast Asia, to Khmer, to Balinese, Javanese, uh, Thai, Laos, Laotian, Mon people, Burmese. So you can see how the Brahmi script has given rise to a family of uh, uh, modern-day languages all over the place, northern India and southern India. So this is our relationship from Indus to Brahmi to present-day scripts. This is what we have uh, uh, today. So if you look at how did the scripts go, we have the North Brahmic script and the South Brahmic script. And here are some of them, Siddham, Karoshti, Nepali, Devanagiri, Gupta, Telugu, Kannada, Tamar, and so on. You can see that Nagari is over here and so on. Siddham script went to China, to Japan and so on and from here. This could be somewhat in dispute because there is also research saying that Japanese script could have been influenced by the old Tamil script also, Tamil Brahmi script. But anyway, this is some of one of the models that is proposed and how it went to Java, to Mindanao, to other places. This is, the, this is how Brahmi scripts influence this part of the world. So coming to Beit Dwaraka, the marine archaeology. So in this paper, Archaeology of Beit Dwaraka Island, they got these uh, things over here. They got this artifact and this very, very interesting artifact, which SR Rao uh, decoded as an old Indo-Aryan 
Iranian language, uh, this has been quotation marks, and he says datable to 1500 BCE, and he says that the sea lord protect, that is what the uh, transitive script says over here. Here's one more uh, script that seems to uh, show uh, animal motif, the unicorn, other things, very, very common in uh, Indus script. Now, coming to Tamil Brahmi itself, there appear to be a whole lot of Tamil Brahmi scripts. For example, 1st century over here, 1st century over here, and uh, some more scripts in Sri Lanka, 200 BCE. And from the Tamil Nadu Archaeological Department, we find from 1st century BCE and uh, 2nd century. The oldest Tamil Brahmi script found, or any Brahmi script found in India, archaeologically, can be dated to Parani. Parani is a place in southern India, in Tamil Nadu. And uh, this is the uh, script over here. And uh, this professor Rajan from Pondicherry University, he excavated this. He found this pot and said the pot was paddy. So we, very luckily, this carbon material there was sent off a carbon dating and came to find BCE. That's how we know the date of this. Then Adi Chanalur and Porinthal, we found from 540 BCE. One more of these things. And here are some of the artifacts they found from here. So... Talking about, we've been talking about scripts all the while over here. What is this Tamil Brahmi? Where did Brahmi come from? Did it come from Harappan script? And finally, how is Tamil related to Brahmi? So it turns out that if you look at uh, this center representation of Brahmi, there appears to be a left evolution and a right evolution for Tamil. In this right evolution, this is the modern Tamil over here. And if you look at the chronology from Tamil Brahmi, it went to something called uh, Vattarita. Vattarithi went to the left side and arrested development does not uh, show up in the archaeological record anymore over here. And Tamil Brahmi gave rise to Pallava Grantha, gave rise to Chola Pallava, gave rise to Vijayanagara, then to modern Tamil. This is how the Brahmi script has evolved. So when somebody comes and says Tamil is the oldest language, oldest script and so on, how do you decode these claims? That is the reason why I am trying to show all these things and trying to tell you that there is a co-evolution. All over India, there's a co-evolution of scripts and co-evolution of things happening. And they all appear to be related to the Harappan script also in some way through the transitive Harappan script. I gave a couple of researchers, Subhash Kak and Rajesh Rao, to show these things. Now, in all of my talks, you'll see that I talk about the archaeological record. I also talk about the paradox that we have in India, that we have a lot of things in our literature that does not have archaeological support. And here is one such thing. What are the non-Harappa references to writing? This is very famous. All of us know this. This is deeply embedded in the Indian context, right? So when Vyasa wanted to write the Vedas, he said that I need a scribe to do that. And Ganesha came, broke off his tusk, Ekadantaya, and he started writing his, uh, the whole of these things. Very, very famous. So in this paper over here, this man actually went through a study of all these references. So Max Muller, uh, uh, he says the writing started in the so-called Sutra period. We'll talk about this later. Panini seems to be referring to Lipikara, which is a scribe. He also refers to Yavanai Lipi, the so-called, not Greek, just Yavana. We don't know what Yavana is. Manu refers to Lipi and uh, Lekita. Manu also, he denounces forgerers of land. So not only was the writing, there was also forgery in that time frame itself because he's denouncing the forgery at that time. Yajnavalkya refers to writing on cotton cloth or copper plates. Vishnu, I don't know which Vishnu it is, I'm asked questioning, is it Dharmothara? It refers to writing. In Buddhist uh, Lalita Vistara, it refers to alphabet that Buddha learnt. Buddha learnt several alphabets and uh, a, a recounting of that is in that work. Strabo, the Greek, he said that Indians wrote on cotton cloth, same as Yajnavalkya said. Majestini said Indians had mileposts and road names. When he came to Magadha, he could see all of these things. 
Strabo quoting somebody else says Indians knew writing in the 4th century BC. Arthashastra says Lippi was a part of instruction in India. So these are the non-Harappan references. We can't date them precisely. If you remember my older talks, you'll see that I dated Yagnavalkya to approximately 3000 BCE. So around, from that time frame, we seem to be talking about writing in the Indian context. So the conclusion from Southern archaeology and scripts, we talked about the Vaigai River excavation at Kiradi, and I said that carbon dating from 300 to 600 BC, that's the golden standard. However, I did analytical inferences for the terminus layer using mathematical models, and I said that it could be 820 BC to 3000 BC with a mean of around 1900 BCE. We talked about Indescript. We said there are three hypotheses. One is it could encode sign, or it could be a so-called Aryan language, or a so-called Dravidian language. Brahmi, we said that appears to be derived from the Harappan script. We found a transitive script in Bedwaraka around 1500 BCE. Tamil Brahmi, archaeologically the oldest find is 540 BCE in Parani. Brahmi has given rise to all the present Indian language scripts several references to writing in ancient Indian literature, and the evidence is inconclusive. So when somebody comes and claims antiquity, oldest, and so on, I would caution that you must not buy in these claims immediately. There's probably, we don't have enough evidence to say that one was the oldest or something's not the oldest. So script is only one part of the story. The other part of the story is language. You know that language can be written in any script, right? In fact, we saw Brahmis uh, can be for use for anything from Oriya to Kannada, Telugu to Hindi, whatever. So when you talk about language, I ask the question, who coined Dravidian as a separate family? So that's a question we want to ask. What is the origin of the word Dravidian? Dravida is a Sanskrit word. It's used to denote the geographical region of southern India. Varahamihira and Brihat Samhita places Dravida to the southwest and east. Parasharas, he placed it to the east. Dravida is used in Tantra Vartika by Kumari Labhata. Adi Shankara and Saundare Lahiri, he refers to himself as a Dravida Shishu, meaning that he is a person who came from the southern parts of India. The missionary Robert Caldwell, he is the person who coined this English word called Dravidian. So we are going to investigate this a little more. like to ask a question, who was the first person who caused the division of Sanskrit versus Dravidian. Today is a received wisdom, right? None of us even bother to think about these things. Received wisdom, separate languages. When William Carey, Thomas Colebrook, and Charles Wilkins, they all believed that every Indian language is derived from Sanskrit. That was their thinking when they first came to India and so on. However, there was a person called A.C. Campbell who was based in the Telugu regions. And he wrote a book called Telugu Grammar in 1816. His primary aim was to disprove these guys, to show that no, there is one more language family in India and it's not all from Sanskrit. His mentor was somebody called Francis White Ellis. And he wrote a 40-page foreword to this Tamil Telugu Grammar and that has come to be called as a Dravidian proof. So in this 40-page proof, he went around saying, uh, for example, he took a word list. One example that I give you is for milk. Milk is such a deeply embedded word in our culture, right? Because uh, farming, animal husbandry and so on. So he said, in southern India, if you go and uh, look at the Tamil word, it's called Pala. If you go to Telugu, it's called Palu. If you go to Kannada, it's called Halu. If you go to Hindi, it's called Dud. If you go to uh, Sanskrit, it's called Dugd and so on. So different languages, different things. So he said that from Dud to Palu is such a big difference. That means they're probably not related. 
So he came about with a bunch of words like this, including the structure of the, uh, he, he compared a word list from Dattapatha, I think it is a work from Panini, Panini's word list, and Telugu list by Shastri. The Shastri professor was working in a Sanskrit college, and he compiled this list for him, and he worked off on that one, compared the roots of those words, compared word list of Kannada, Tamil, Telugu, showed the cognates. Cognates are when the words are all related to each other in some way, like halu, palu, pal, and all these kind of things. Compared the word list constructed from roots of Kannada, Tamil, Telugu with a prefix suffix pattern and what meter was used and he proposed that there is something called a Dravidian language. So once he did that, that was a received wisdom. Things have not changed since. It's, that's the accepted way of doing it. His works were inherited by two missionaries. One is G.U. Pope and Robert Caldwell. And ever since it became the common way of looking at southern Indian languages that they are a separate family called Dravidian. So this is G.U. Pope. So uh, he came and he said in uh, 1859 year Uti, he said that Thiruvalluvar, who was a very, very famous, one of the most respected saints in Tamil Nadu, he said that in a credible tradition, he lived in St. Tom about the time when the first Armenian merchant settled there. His friend was a sea captain and he was introduced to Christian ideas. And therefore, his work contains a lot of Christian ideas. And here we have Rajiv Malhotra who completely said is a preposterous claim. And he showed why uh, you cannot admit any of these uh, uh, things about Thiruvalluvar who wrote the Kural and so on. So when you look at Dravidian languages today, the academia looks at this as a proto-southern Dravidian which gave rise to Tamil, Kannada and Malayalam and so on. The north Dravidian which gave rise to Kuruk, to Brahui, and other uh, pockets of uh, so-called Dravidian languages in the north. Then in Proto-Central that gave rise to uh, uh, these, these tribal languages over here. Then South-Central Dravidian gave rise to Telugu and other scripts. So this is the way academics look at these languages today. So who is uh, Caldwell? Caldwell was a missionary, linguist, bishop of Tinilveli. He wrote a book on comparative grammar and southern languages. His biographer says his primary concern was to convert the South Indians to Christianity. That's where he came from. That was his motive. That's what he did. And over here, for example, he said he was trying to compare the role of Latin in Christian works with the role of Sanskrit in uh, Tamil works. So he said you can readily remove the Sanskrit from Tamil works and get a more refined state. Whereas English cannot abandon its Latin. So very, very interesting though, he's trying to always relate in his work on comparative grammar, how, uh, 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 for example, 10 commandments expressed in the speech of lower class of Tamil people, the proportion of Sanskrit will be greatly diminished. You can see the lens with which he's coming. He's coming with a lens saying that he, they've identified the enemy is Sanskrit. We need to remove Sanskrit out if we want to convert the Southern Indian. So every one of their works was aimed at trying to write works of this nature. There's a lot of things I can underline over here, but not uh, doing that. So he asserted that a group of people called Chanars were indigenous Dravidians. And the minute he said that, the Chanars went up in furious uprising because they didn't consider themselves as distinct from Hindus. They said, we are Hindus. How dare you remove us out of Hinduism? That was the uh, thing. So... He introduced the idea that ethnically that they were distinct from high-class oppressors. The Chanars were distinct from high-class oppressors. He coined the pejorative called Brahminical Aryan. So today if you see in your NCRT textbook words like Brahminical Aryan, you know it came from Caldwell. From Caldwell it has come to the Marxist hands and the Marxists are using it to their advantage today. 
So uh, it is intended to manufacture history where that indigenous Dravidians are subdued and colonized by Brahminical audience. Like I said, the Chanars opposed the book that they did not want to be divorced from Brahminical civilization. And the book was described as pejorative, outrageous and paternalistic. However, the Tamil Nadu government in 1968, they honored him with a statue. If you go to Marina Beach in Chennai, you can see the statue today of uh, this man. He introduced these ideas, ethnic distinctiveness of the southern Indian. He introduced a pejorative called Brahminical. He introduced the idea that southern people are oppressed and subdued. And he also said that you can get something called Sen Tamil, which means pure Tamil, by purging the Sanskrit from it. Remove the Sanskrit and replace it with Tamil words and you'll get a purer form of Tamil. So he, he introduced these ideas. His legacy is what we are living with today. This is one of the biggest fault lines in India today, the Dravidian and the uh, Aryan thing, which is an issue in Tamil Nadu more than anything else. So EVR, he formed the self-respect movement, the Dravidar Karanga. And his movement was uh, supposedly dedicated to the goal of giving non-Brahmins a sense of pride based on the Dravidian past. His biographer wrote that. And in another book, Pandian, he wrote that he thought that Brahminical priesthood, Sanskritic social class hierarchy is blamed for existence of inequalities. He stated that Christian and Islamic religions were fulfilling social advancement, but the Hindu religion remained totally unsuitable for social progress. So this is the thinking is embedded even today when you see M.K. Stalin and others in bed with the Christians and Muslims and uh, working against Hinduism. It's basically they've uh, Im imbibed these ideas to a very deep extent. It's part of their DNA. He also released a map of a proposed Dravidanadu at a separatist conference in 1940 at Kanchipuram. But the British obviously threw that whole thing out. They said, we're not going to make a separate Dravidanadu over here. So legacy today, we are DMK and all these parties that continue this one. So I don't know why this whole thing is gone. There's a dark legacy of uh, Caldwell. Oh, I don't know when I did this. Okay. So uh, some of the academic works today, there is this uh, Narsimachari who wrote that ancient Dravidian religion, religion is agamic and is non-Vedic. In modern review, worship of village deities, Ishtadevatas, is pre-Vedic Dravidian religion. And uh, in these works by these Westerners, presence of Dravidian loanwords in Sanskrit works proves synthesis of Vedic with Dravidian religion. Then the Simha in 1979, he showed that the famous uh, ancient poems of uh, Tamil Nadu, all these works, they show an ancient Dravidian religion. So this is where you are today. Today you have academia trying to show that the distinctive language, distinctive people, distinctive uh, religion, distinctive literature, and so on. It's come to such an extent where the separatist ideas have become so deep and uh, endorsed by academia. So that's where we are uh, as a dark legacy. And also the very famous deities Murugan, who is Karthikeyan in northern India, and Shivan go to the Indus Valley civilization. Mahadevan and uh, uh, Vohra stated these things. I put this over here to give shock value. The shock value is there are so many hundreds and thousands of Indic writers from ancient times, very, very ancient times. Let's put a selection over here, Abhinav Gupta, Adi Shankara, Agathir, and so on and so forth. Who talks about Aryan invasion? Who talks about Dravidian here? Not one person anywhere in any Indian work from 2000 years ago, 3000 years ago, 1000 years ago, 500 years ago, nobody talks about we are a separate people. The southern Indian or the northern Indian never saw themselves as different from, I'm different from you, you're different from me. They never saw themselves as that. So that whole idea of north-south Dravidian Aryan is not present in a single work. I just put a selection of them over here, just to give a shock value that this is what our people said. However, when Caldwell and uh, Geo Pope came along with Ellis White, all of a sudden we have become Aryans and Dravidians and North Indians and South Indians and oppressed oppressor. 
So this is Nagaswamy, a retired ASI general of Tamil Nadu circle. He wrote this book, Tamil Nadu, Land of the Vedas. He examines a variety of literary works, epigraphy, Sangamira to medieval. He concludes that Vedic practice is deeply ingrained, ingrained in southern India and is as old as the earliest literary works. Here is uh, Professor David Shulman from Hebrew University. He wrote his book, Tamar, a biography. He examines a number of literary works and he uh, talks about the erasure of Tamil intellectual tradition, a tyranny born of linguistic nationalism. So in other words, he is bemoaning the fact that the ancient literary works have been corrupted by removing their ancient idiom and putting a new so-called pure Tamil idiom into it. So he's bemoaning that erasure of Tamil intellectual tradition. And he talks about, he concludes that never was a time Tamil existed independently of Sanskrit. Very, very powerful words by two completely different researchers of contemporary times and uh, what they thought about uh, these things. So uh, a research paper from uh, Conrad Elst in Waves 2003 are Dravidians native to the south? If you look at the substratum of places in Sindh, Gujarat, Maharashtra, they indicate Dravidian presence according to Parapola, who shows that things like Palli, Valli, and Pata, Pavada, and Vad, and all these things in Gujarat, the structural pattern is there in Marathi, Gujarati, and Sindh, and he says these are all Dravidian, Dravidian words. How, would, how do these things appear over here? This, however, is present only in the coastline. It's conspicuously absent in Punjab, Haryana, Hindi belt. And I'm suggesting that because Tamil Nadu was a seafaring civilization, so they would start from maybe the ancient Kumari Kandam, which existed 90 miles south of uh, Kanyakumari, and trade in pearls and cotton and so on, move from there to Koilon, Koilon to maybe somewhere in Goa, Goa to Lothal, from Lothal maybe to somewhere in Sindh, and from Sindh to Red Sea area, to go on to uh, Babylon and Sumeria and so on. These are the ancient trading. Over thousands of years, these trading links have been developed. And in these coastal areas, they would import and export their culture. So uh, the presence and coastline tells us that seafaring traders hopped on coastal cities from the south to Babylon, and that's how those words also might have changed. Michael Witzeli says there is no Dravidian loanword in the oldest Vedic layers, and they appear later only in words of commercial transactions. Again, a very interesting <coughs> word there. Then there is more Sanskrit and Dravidian than so-called Dravidian and Sanskrit. And also this uh, M. Renault in 1956, he says that Dravidian loanwords ceased towards the common era, implying he's uh, believing in Aryan invasion theory, implying exit of Dravidians in the Ganga Valley. So you find uh, uh, these, these things debated by Conrad Lelst over here. So in India today, academia calls it something called a linguistic area. Linguistic area is something academia uses to, uh, they call it a sprachbund, a place where many languages seem to coexist and we have all of these language families, the sizes of these families over here. Today, there are academicians who use something called Bayesian uh, phylogenetics uh, uh, in order to try and see the roots of the so-called proto-Dravidian. In other words, how are all these words, Tulu to Kannada to Malayalam, Telugu, all these words, how are they related to each other and where is their ancestor? So by making use of the same tools as genetics, they try to do mathematically to see where is it related. And they come with something like 2500 BC is where the ancestral proto so-called Dravidian languages. However, the criticism to uh, levy against these things is, why wouldn't they also investigate relationships with existing Indian languages, Sanskrit and other such languages? So if that embedded the relationships and looked for a common root, we would have found different things. 
So they have already used Ellis White's idea that there is a Dravidian language in the northern Indian languages and used that as a constraint to build these mathematical models and used that in a circular logic to try and uh, prove whatever they want to prove. So this is the fallacy of these kind of studies. One more thing about uh, southern Indians and northern Indians, when they go around saying we are racially different people, so they go around saying that look at me, I am dark, look at that guy, he's fair. Surely he's not the same race as I am. We are two different races. That's the kind of thinking that is there in uh, very base level thinking in India. So uh, some, some, some parts of India at least. So in this particular paper in 2013, these researchers came in this genetics saying that light skin allele of this uh, SLC24A5 is related to shares identity by descent. Basically, it is something present in the 15th chromosome in the human body. It's a mutation. That mutation appeared around uh, 22 to 28,000 years ago. And it is responsible for the expression of melanin. If you have that, then it, express, it defines how much of melanin you'll produce. And the, depending on the melanin you have, depending on the latitude in which you live, it tells you what skin tone you'll take on. If you live in the southern latitudes, more direct sunlight, you'll take on a darker skin tone. If you live in northern latitudes, lesser sunlight, you'll have a lighter skin tone. And if you did not have that, and you go to southern uh, latitudes, your skin will burn and you'll get cancer, you'll get sunburnt. That is, the, that is the thinking. So it is only the presence and absence of this allele that defines the skin color. It's nothing to do with race. Race is such a, a, a spurious term. It's not something that is present uh, genetically at all. So here is an interesting paper that I found. And uh, I, I live in Houston. So this caught my eye <laughs> to see what on earth is going on over here. This researchers over here, they found that they wanted to study Houston Gujaratis versus uh, Singapore Tamilians, who both lived, two groups that lived in Houston. They took their genetics, uh, their DNA profiles, and tried to understand what are the differences. 85 Gujaratis and 83 Tamils in Singapore. And they found that Whenever there is uh, the blue color, it says that when the Gujaratis compared with uh, Italian, if the similarity between them is greater than 0.5 and Gujarati to Tamilian is less than 0.5, it's a blue color. These are all the chromosomes, 1 to 22, and the chromosomal length. If the red color says Gujarati to Italian is less than 0.5 and Gujarati to Tamil is greater than 0.5, then it is red. You can just eyeball this and see that there is more similarity than dissimilarity. Just eyeball it and see that. And you can see that in the 15th chromosome, 15th chromosome is over here. And right here you see the differences. That's a skin tone color. So uh, looking at uh, eyeballing these things and looking at it, we can say certain things. But then you can spin this in many ways. And that's what we find. Academics spin graphs like this and try to talk about distinctness. I can use the same thing to show similarity rather than distinctness. So the conclusion from Deep South is I've examined some assertions about Dravidianism. Kumari condoms stretching from Africa to Australia is highly unlikely, very, very exaggerated. Uh, Brahmi appears derived from Harappa. North and South variants appear to be present and impacted the entire Indic family of scripts are impacted by that. There is not sufficient evidence of Harappa being so-called Dravidian because that whole notion is spurious. We don't know what it means. Division of Indic languages into Indo-Iranian and Dravidian is based on Ellis, and I am suggesting it needs re-examination. Today, if I go around saying that, people say this guy is a fool. Our received wisdom is there are two language families. That's what social sciences study. But then perhaps there is need to examine that. Shiva and Kartikeyan are pan-Indian divinities. We didn't talk about that. We talked about Nagaswami Shulman identifying Vedic in oldest Tamil literature. Color differences due to this mutation. And the notion that Dravidianism is separate is spurious and it's a manufactured identity. 